Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 21. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of life is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to speak of the things that they do in secret. For when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as wise, but as, or unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's the word of God. Let's pray. Father, your word is clear and speaks loudly. May we not tune it out. May it sink down deep into our lives, and may we not forget what we look like. We pray that, Lord, you would search us, help us to see the beauty of Christ, and to know who we are in him. Pray you would speak now, Holy Spirit, to your church and to me. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So we've been going through Ephesians, this beautiful uh, epistle, and it's a beautiful picture of the bride of Christ, the church, and what it should look like. What the church should be believing and then doing. And the first three chapters have been doctrinal and then the last three chapters are application. And if you like outlines, the first chapter is what God did, the second chapter is how God did it, the third chapter is why God did it, and the last three chapters are so what. So what did God do? He saved you. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He redeemed us by the blood of Christ. He sealed us with the Holy Spirit. That's chapter one. Chapter two is how he did it. He did it without your help. When you were dead in trespasses and sins, it was by his grace that you've been saved. And it's by faith, not by works. Then why did he do it? Well, God did it to declare the manifold wisdom of God in the heavenly realms that we would be on display, the church, that God is preaching to the angels to say, look at, look at, look at my greatness through the beauty of the church. And then chapters four to six is where we're at now. All the major divisions in the, in the application are walk commands. So it all goes hinges back to Ephesians 2.10. 
You were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to walk in them. And then all the commands in four to six are all walk commands. We've got three in this chapter. So the three walk commands are where to walk in love, where to walk in light, and where to walk circumspectly or walk carefully. Those are the kind of the bookmarks. So walk in love, verse two. Walk in the light is verse eight. And then verse uh, 15 and 16 is to walk wisely. Okay, so that's where we're going. Now, how many of you guys ever heard the name Tim Tebow? Has anybody ever heard of him before? I just was wondering. Um, He has a new book entitled Know Who You Are, and I haven't really read the book, but my wife read to me the first chapter and said, you got to see this. And it just so happened, like, man, that's what I'm speaking on. So I wanted you to hear this. And I want you to remember, when you think of Tim Tebow, you've got the good and the bad with Tim as far as his athletic career. He's won two national championships, BCS national championships, one Heisman Trophy, first round draft pick, won a playoff game, But most people know Tim Tebow more recently that he was cut by the Patriots, cut by the Jets, cut by the Eagles, and no longer playing pro football, and now trying to revive his career playing minor league baseball. So he has experienced the unbelievable heights of winning a national championship, winning a Heisman Trophy. Yet he's been cut by three football teams and told by everybody, you can't throw a football. How would you like to be Tim Tebow? Well, here's how his book begins. Know Who You Are is the title. The first chapter is, Who Are You? And he says this, The world does not define you. Not the clothes you wear, not the kind of music you listen to, not the mistakes you've made, not the trophies you won. You are not defined by what others think of you, good or bad, or how many people follow or like you on Instagram or Snapchat or Facebook. You're not defined by the talents you have or don't have. There's only one thing, one person who defines your personality. His name is Jesus Christ. When you stop trying to follow the crowd, look a certain way, or do things just like everybody else, you can finally live in the unique design by which you were created. Isn't that great? That enables Tim to be either high or low athletically. He gives glory to God. We often hear the the phrase where people will say, he or she is trying to find himself. I need to go off somewhere so I can find myself. And it's a huge identity question, and it's one that always seems to be at the root of our problems and our anxiety. If you've received Jesus Christ as Lord and are following him, then you actually have a permanent answer to this question. You found yourself. You found yourself in him. And, and if not, the identity question is going to endlessly re- revolve around what you do. It will be very performance oriented, like my career, my education, my work, my athletic achievements. And it works really well when things are going well. But eventually, the carpet gets pulled and it's not going so well. This is what the Bible calls idolatry when we're living for other identities. It's a bad solar system. This was a Martin Lloyd-Jones illustration where he would would talk about what does righteousness mean? It means what's, what's the center of your life? What is the center of your life? Do you have people around you close enough that you could ask, what do you think is the center of my life? 
What is your solar system? What is everything else revolving around? You remember Rocky's line from, from Rocky, the first movie of the six. <laughs> he said, I just want to go the distance to prove I'm not a bum. Well, what if Rocky doesn't go the distance? When Ronda Rousey lost to Holly Holm in the MMA fight, most of you probably never seen that, probably a good thing. Um, when she lost, she hibernated and, and she contemplated suicide because her whole world had come to an end. Everything that she identified with who she is, she's undefeated, she's the best female MMA fighter in the world. And then she loses and who am I now? And she's ready to take her life. She contemplated seriously taking her life because her identity structure, her solar system had just crashed and now she's realizing she's walking in darkness. Well, the Apostle Paul has a lot here in Ephesians but there's this but now theme that is big in the Paul, and I just want to draw your attention to it because it's, it shows up in this chapter. And the but now is who you are in Christ. Have you ever seen this theme in Paul's writings before? Let me just read a few of these, and I want you to write these down because these are worth reflecting on during the week as to who you are. What is your identity? Listen to these but now verses. Romans 6, 20 to 22. When you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you're now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now, you've been set free from sin, have become slaves to God, and the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For while you were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now... We're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. And then how about the example of Onesimus? Paul says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. And then how about Ephesians 5, 8? For at one time, you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of, of light. For at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. What's essential here to note is who we are comes before what we do. We don't obey so that we can, so that we can be loved. We obey because we are loved. It's a huge difference. The love of our Father proceeds and stimulates the obedience of his children. There was a, a, a quote, this, this is, uh, you don't have to go to seminary now. Once you've got this quote, you've got the biggest seminary gem that you'll hear repeated over and over again. Here it is, Herman Ritterboss. He was a huge theologian last century and he has this quote that gets used a lot. 
Here it is. Now, as regards the relationship to each other, these different ways of speaking, it is immediately clear that the imperative rests on the indicative and that this order is not reversible. Boy, that sounds great, doesn't it? What in the world does that mean? The imperative rests on the indicative and this order is not reversible. The command always comes after who you are. You were once darkness, but now you are light, indicative. That's who you are. So what's the command? The imperative is to walk as children of, as light, of light. So the imperative rests on the indicative and the order is not reversible. It's because of who you are in Christ that now you're to live in light of that. And because you are light in the Lord, now we're to walk as children of light and we're to walk very carefully and we're to walk in love these first two verses and no longer walking in contrast in lust. So the walking in, in love is this idea that we're giving ourselves to others as Christ gave himself for us. And we're not living lustfully and living self-indulgently for ourselves as we formerly used to. And so Paul in, in this epistle has been telling us to put off certain things and to put on certain things. And, and in chapter four, he kind of uses these generic terms of putting off and putting on and, and you're not really sure, well, what are these things? Well, they're spelled out real clearly in this chapter. It's sexual immorality. It's impurity. It's covetousness. And then in verse four, he gives three more. It's filthiness, foolish talk, and the Greek word is morologia. It is a foolish word, okay? We're not to talk as fools. Not no filthiness, foolish talk, or, or crude joking. He's saying put those things away because of who you are now in Christ. Who are you? Well, he says here in verse three that we're saints. And the word saints is just the word holy ones. We are holy. So when he says saints, he's saying because we're holy people, we're set apart for God. We're already made pure by him. And so we're to live in light of that. And so these other things, they're out of place. They're not fitting. It's improper. And here's the reality. This chapter, as you kind of take the whole of it, if you just kind of narrow it in, it would be a lot of negatives. But, but really, the chapter's about worship. Because what's the best use of our tongues, verse 4? What's the best possible use of our tongues? Well, it's, it's not filthiness, it's not foolish talk, it's not crude joking, but rather, what is the best use of our tongues? Thanksgiving. And he tells us, if you're filled with the Spirit, here's how it's going to look like. you filled with the Spirit this morning, you have this command of being filled with the Spirit, it's an imperative, and then you've got the four participles. And so whenever you see these INGs in a literal translation, it's, it's going on, this is what it looks like. So here's what filled with the Holy Spirit looks like. It's speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. It's singing and making melody. And making melody is just another word for singing. We're to sing and sing some more. And then we're to give thanks, giving thanks, and then submitting to one another. So if you're filled with the Spirit, you're going to be full of those four things. Submitting to my brothers, giving thanks in everything, and singing and speaking to one another, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's worship. You see... But if we're not worshiping, here's, here's the, the kind of the crux here. When we are thankful, we are content 
or we are moving towards contentment. Because there's times we've got to be thankful and it will drive us to contentment. Because it roots out self-pity, it roots out uh, despair, and it roots out godless thinking. When we are thankful, we're content or moving towards contentment. When we are not thankful, we are always moving towards idolatry. That's Romans 1. That's Ephesians 5. So if we're making good use of our words and our bodies, we're going to be thankful. We're going to be worshiping. But if we're not thankful, now what are we moving towards? These, all these other vices of false worship, of sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness and filthy talk and foolish talk and, and crude joking. It's a bad consolation prize. These two are tied together, I think, in that you shouldn't be part of creating an environment and conversation where you're creating this musty environment where mold of impurity and sexual immorality is going to grow. So you've got to clean up the talk because filthy hearts will, will come out in filthy words. Now, if you drill down on this, you say, boy, it sounds like the Apostle Paul or the Bible is just really full of don'ts. There's a lot of do's and don'ts in this passage. And some people label, uh, you hear people talk about a puritanical negative view of shame or negative view of sex. And I thought, I came across a Tim Keller illustration I thought was really helpful this week. When you think about these verses here in Ephesians 5 and why is Paul make a big deal about sexual morality? And if you're wondering, what does that mean? It's the Greek word porneia. It means any sex outside of marriage. So that's what it means, okay? Um, so that's fornication, that's adultery, that's homosexuality. All those things are porneia. But Tim Keller says this, he says, let me ask you something. What if you were the director of an art museum and somebody gave you the Mona Lisa? Something that was absolutely priceless. How would you react to that? Would you say, well, I don't, I don't want to have any rules or regulations about who sees it or security or how, you know, it doesn't matter. In fact, let's just put it out in the front yard of the art museum because I, don't, I think really the most egalitarian and democratic approach to this particular piece of art is to let everybody see it. Let everybody do what they want with it. That's the most important thing. Of course not. What would you do if you were the director of the art museum? What you'd do is you'd have incredible security. You'd have all sorts of rules. You'd see the more artistically sensitive you were, the more careful you'd be about how the piece of art was watched and seen and used. You'd have all kinds of strict rules, and you'd be extremely upset if anybody broke them. Why? Because you have a negative view of art? No. It's because you have such a high view of art. That's why the director of this museum or that museum has all these rules and regulations. In, in the same way, Christians have a higher view of sex. He's saying, I'm not saying that every Christian at every church, but I'm saying Christianity has a higher view of sex than the prevailing culture. That's the reason these are, these are rules. That's why God holds it up much higher and much more precious and much more sacred. So what do we do when it's all around us. We, we live in a very pornified, sexified culture that wants to shamelessly take away any little shred of innocence. Well, what do we do? Well, we got to fight and we got to flee. Paul said to Timothy, we're to flee youthful lust, but then he said we're to pursue righteousness. 
We've got to flee and pursue. It's essentially what Paul is saying here. He's saying there shouldn't even be a hint of sexual immorality. Don't peruse it, don't indulge it, don't feed it, starve it. Kevin DeYoung in his book, A Hole in Our Holiness, which came out a few years ago, and he was really kind of taking the Reformed Church to task, that we're really big into the ongoing need of the gospel and these things, but what about holiness? You know, he says, when was the last time we took a verse like Ephesians 5, 4, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. He said, and even apply it to our conversation. The movies that we watch, our YouTube clips, our television and commercial intake, what does it mean that there must not be a hint of immorality among the saints? I mean, it must mean something. I mean, sometimes you hear people say, oh, I went to this movie, and it's got, it's got one or two bad scenes, one or two sex scenes, but other than that, it's a good movie. I mean, would you go to war if you said, well, you're only going to get shot twice? Would you, you're only going to get shot twice if you go see this movie. And you're never going to get it out of your mind the rest of your life. But other than that, it's a good movie. Would you want to see that? He says this, if we could transport Christians from almost any other century to any of today's Christian countries in the West, I believe what would surprise them most, besides our phenomenal affluence, is how at home Christians are with sexual impurity. It doesn't shock us, it doesn't offend us, it doesn't offend our consciences. In fact, unless it's really bad, and sexual impurity, sexual impurity seems normal, just a way of life, often downright entertaining. Jeff Cook, who's a philosopher, Christian writer, he wrote a book called Seven, and it's on the seven deadly sins. And he refers to this C.S. Lewis illustration that I can't find anywhere. So one of you smarter people than me that knows where this illustration comes from, you let me know after the service. I tried Googling it to no avail. He says, C.S. Lewis invites us to imagine that we have visited an alien world where scores of people have assembled to watch a strip tease. Imagine, however, that instead of a woman, a small covered platter is brought out. And with all eyes wide, someone slowly removes the lid, revealing a steaming hamburger. We think the strip tease is a joke, but all around us, people begin howling. Others snicker, elbowing their friends. Some just sit quivering in their seats. If such a world did exist, we would not think this display merely odd. We would think something inside the audience was broken. A healthy appetite for food is good, but when appetites turn into manic behavior, something is in a state of disrepair. Is that not our culture? Is that not how we often think? So does this mean you should just shut your TV off? Don't go ever to the movie theater. Don't engage, hibernate. What do you think? I think a helpful paradigm, and this is once again coming from Tim Keller, he has a paradigm and he has these three terms and I'll give them to you. And you can think through and wrestle through this paradigm, but here they are. A tourist, an immigrant, or an ambassador. Which are you this morning? Here's a tourist. How does a tourist relate to another country? A tourist goes to another country and he just uses the culture. It's just there for him to take advantage of. Take lots of pictures, maybe post them on Facebook. He's just in and out. He wants to see the sights. He wants to know where the bus will pick him up. He wants to just learn enough language so he can get by and he uses the culture. That's a tourist. The immigrant, though, the immigrant says, I want to adapt. I have to assimilate. And if not me, then my children. And they do everything they can to assimilate into the culture. 
They want to completely move in. They want to get all the benefits of the culture. They want to get more power, more money. They want to move up. That's an immigrant. And then you have an ambassador. An ambassador is neither a tourist nor an immigrant. An ambassador is someone who, on the one hand, plays, always knows where his or her true country is. An ambassador, unlike an immigrant, never gets rid of his old citizenship papers. And the ambassador says, I'm here to do the business of my country. And the ambassador must do everything necessary to make perfect communication possible between the ambassador and the culture where the ambassador lives. This means you want to know the language well, perfectly, flawlessly, dialectlessly, if possible. You have to understand the institutions. You want to understand the customs. You want to understand the culture inside out. So the ambassador never actually settles there. The ambassador never becomes a citizen of that country. The ambassador never says, I'm becoming a part of this country. He says, I'm here to do the bidding of my government. That's where Keller says that's a Christian. A Christian is somebody who has no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. He keeps his citizenship papers in heaven, realizes where his true country is, loves his true country. He's very careful not actually to assimilate, but on the other hand, is extremely concerned to communicate. The tourist doesn't communicate. The immigrant only assimilates, but the ambassador doesn't assimilate, but he does communicate. And I think our tendency is often to be one of... One or the other, either be way off in the tourist realm or to be way over in the immigrant realm. And we're to be ambassadors for Christ. And we're to live very carefully as we walk in the light. This word here, it says, look carefully how you live. The idea is accurately, orderly, diligently. It's like the wise men. It's the same word that's used for them when they were looking for Jesus. They looked very carefully. And it's the same word that, that Luke began, the Gospel of Luke, that he gave a very orderly account. Every detail. He, play, he interviewed everybody. It was very orderly. He's saying that's how we're to live our lives. We're to buy back the time, redeeming the time, because it can be gone, just like that. I was reading just this week. I didn't, hear, I didn't realize that Nabil Qureshi, whom most of us were given the book for, by the mission committee, um, seeking Allah, finding Jesus. You guys remember that book? He's a great apologist in the Muslim, uh, was a Muslim, come to Christ. He's a real strong apologist. He's 34 years old, got his first kid. He's in stage four stomach cancer, and his prognosis is really bad. And he's no longer with Ravi Zacharias Ministries, can't tour with them anymore, and I don't think they can do any more treatment. He's still praying for healing. Life is short. He's 34 years old. We've got to buy back the time. We make these plans. I'm going to do this or that, and then I'm going to do this or that. What does James say? If the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. I was talking to Margaret recently, Margaret Davis, and she said, I want you to do my funeral. You know, and I said, Margaret, I may go before you. I don't, none of us has that guarantee. I mean, I joke with her. I said, you remember when 87 was the year, Margaret? 87 was the year. I mean, she had a big birthday card. It was 87. And she said, this is it. No more birthdays. I'm going to be with Jesus this year. She was 87, and this is it. Now she's 90, and she's still in the same place, and she laughs because now she doesn't hold time strings to God. He said, whenever, he's, whenever he comes to me, I'm ready. We don't know. But she's being a blessing to others. She's buying back the time, and she's in a nursing home. 
It's interesting, a while back on it, we're hearing from the campus ministers, they came to our Presbyterian meeting, and these are different RUF ministers at different campuses in Virginia, Delaware, Maryland, and they all kind of shared the same thing. And I, I shared this a little bit before, how they were saying that all the kids are so busy now that they don't even have time for extracurricular activities because they're so busy. And, and they were reflecting on why is that, you know, the challenge. Do you know what they said as the conclusion? Here it is. You want to talk about buying back the time. They said, well, has the homework changed? No. What has changed is it takes them twice as long to do their homework. So homework that took two hours now takes four because the social media is constantly running and the texts are constantly coming in and the cell phone is causing them to take double the homework time. And because of double the homework time, they can't be involved in the curricular activities. And the realization is this. Actually, if you would commit to these being in the Christian community, because this is a bad trade-off, it's virtual fellowship for fellowship. So what's happening is we're not committing to these disciplines where we need the body because we think we've got too much homework, but actually the person who commits to this actually comes back and has a better student because they put their phone away and realize I gotta get this done in two hours. I don't have, I can't just blow off the evening. I gotta get on it. That's something for us to think about as we think about how social media and texting is changing our culture. And it's changing, it's not just, it's everything. I mean, and I, we could go on with this for a long time, but let me tell you this, the church isn't the only one struggling. I mean, I was listening to the NFL is struggling. They're losing their market share. The NFL is concerned. They're, they're marketing ways, how can we shorten this game because we're losing our market share because everything's diversifying. Nobody's watching the news anymore. They're in big trouble. Cable networks, they're in trouble. ESPN, they're in trouble. Everybody's in trouble, even the church, because social media and the internet is now, everything's becoming so diversified. We gotta buy back the time and think about what is really important. And I think we're making some poor exchanges with our time. Napoleon once said, there is in the midst of every battle, a, this is reported, I haven't found this quote either. If you find it, let me know. There is in the midst of every battle, a 10 to 15 minute period that's the crucial point. Take that period and you win the battle, lose it or you'll be defeated. Pretty interesting quote. Now I would say for us daily, there's probably a 15 second window in which the real battle of the day is fought. And it's a real fight against laziness, anxiety, Covetousness, lust, bitterness, self-pity, anger, resentment, disappointment, retreat, pull away, conflict avoidance, fight, flight, expectations, disappointments. And we, those are those moments where we gotta fight. Holiness, John Stott said this one little sentence quote this week, he said, holiness is not a condition into which we drift. We don't drift into holiness. So we have to fight. And so the way that we fight is we gotta come back to the word as children. Remember that we live as children in the light. King Felix said to Paul, when Paul was discoursing on righteousness, self-control, judgment to come, Felix was afraid and he said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. How do you think that worked out for Felix? How's it working for you? Are you in the word? Are you singing? 
Usually when we get too busy, we say, man, I don't have any time for worship, no personal time for worship. And this is saying, well, actually, if you're going to buy back the time and be filled with the Spirit, you're going to do more worshiping, more engaging, and then you're, you're doing it with your brothers and sisters. I have a lot more to say here, but due to time, I'm going to stop. Let's pray together. Father, your word is what we need. Forgive us for being conformed to the patterns of this world and not being transformed by the renewing of our mind. We come today sober by this passage, remembering who we are as children of God, that we are light in the Lord. Help us to honor you, to glorify you in the good and in the bad. May you receive our praises in Jesus' name. Amen.